Chronicles chapter number 22. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our online services if you watched them over the weekend. And I hope you'll go back if you didn't catch the Sunday night service, another level of prayer. That message I preached, I believe it was January the 30th of last year. I was a little frustrated because we didn't baptize a single person in the month of January last year. And I began to be dealt with by God about prayer, and uh, and the Lord moved, and from there, we baptized a whole lot of people, and uh, and it wasn't me, it was the Word. When the Word came, we responded, and you prayed, and God moved, and so when we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do for Sunday night, uh, we spent... How many weeks do we spend thinking about that? I kept putting them off. They kept asking me what service you want to run Sunday night, and I kept putting them off because I was praying, and I felt like that was the one. So if you've not watched Sunday night's broadcast or rebroadcast of another level of prayer, I hope you'll go back and watch it. And uh, I did learn one thing, that uh, preaching a Sunday morning service will get about 440 views, but bloopers will get about 3,000. We were filming that, that Christmas greeting as a family, and when it was over, I told him, I said, make a blooper reel and play it at the end, and that, that's, uh, I'm going to make more blooper reels. It's going to be really easy for me. First Chronicles 22, in verse number one, if you found it, say amen. amen. Then David said, this is the house of the Lord God. And this is the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. And David commanded to gather together the strangers that were in the land of Israel. And he set masons to hew wrought stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails for the doors of the gates. And for the joinings and brass in abundance without weight. Also cedar trees in abundance. For the Zidonians and they of Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender. And the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnifical. I want to read that phrase to you again. And the house that is to be builded for the Lord, everybody say must. must. The house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding Magnifical, of fame and of glory. Now notice this phrase, throughout all countries. It didn't say throughout all Israel. Its glory should be throughout all countries. I will therefore 
Now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. And the house, the second phrase of verse 5, and the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnificent. I want to preach something the Lord laid on my heart the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving. And I feel like it's the message for the year coming up. I want to preach for a while tonight. Make it magnificent. Look at somebody and tell them, say, make it magnificent. God, I pray for your anointing. I feel like you've spoken. Help me, God, to be in tune with what you've spoken. Help me to say what you want me to say and not say anything that you don't. And God, what I do say, let it be anointed with a coal of fire from your altar. Let the anointing of the Holy Ghost touch the ear of the hearer. Both those that are in the house and those that are going to consume it by some form of media. I pray, God, let the anointing of the Holy Ghost move in this place. God, I pray that tonight you would give us a dispensation of your glory that would rest upon this place and upon your people. Speak a word into our spirit and let it connect with our heart and with our mind. God, I pray in the name of Jesus, let it become a pattern for how we approach the way that we serve you in the next year. God, I pray, Lord, let it be more than a sermon. We've had enough sermons. But God, let it be a word from you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. amen. Give the Lord a good praise as you're being seated tonight. Let me go ahead and begin by saying that even... God-loving, worshiping people are not perfect. If you're expecting even the best of Christians to be perfect, you're going to be disappointed. Living in a wicked and evil world brings sinful influences upon us. The Bible said in 2 Peter 2 and 8, speaking of Lot, the Bible said, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Bible called Lot a righteous man. But the Bible said that his righteous soul was vexed day to day, not by doing but by seeing and hearing. The word vex there means to be harassed. It means to cause pain to body or mind, to test. Has anybody ever been out in the world after a good red hot Sunday night service and find your soul harassed by the environment that you have to go back to 
Amen. You can leave the church with a song on your heart, get to work on Monday, and the stuff that you have to see and hear begins to vex, harass your righteous soul. That word vex, it refers directly to a touchstone. A touchstone. A touchstone is a black stone that is used to test the purity of gold and silver. What will you do is you would take gold and silver and you would, you, you would rub it against the touchstone. And the mark, the streak that was produced by rubbing the touchstone against the gold or silver would determine, would say the purity of the gold or the purity of the silver. The touchstone would leave a mark and the mark would show the purity of the precious metal. Can I tell you that the enemy hopes to mark God's people by forcing them to rub up against sin from day to day. Amen. The enemy wants the conversations you have to listen to to leave a mark on you. The people that you have to rub shoulders with to leave a mark on you. Can I tell you tonight that it is the daily grind of this world and its wickedness that weakens people's convictions, their worship, their faithfulness, their prayer life, and their involvement. Seeing and hearing. Just simply living in this world leaves a mark on the soul of a Christian. Not from doing. How many of you ever been in an environment that you didn't say what they said and you didn't do what they did, but when you got away, you felt just as dirty as if you had? Anybody, any hands? It's because it's a touchstone. The enemy is using the world to try to diminish the purity of the gold that's in your soul. Seeing and hearing, vexing your righteous soul. Just a little bit each day, living a little bit of a mark of worldliness, carnality, sinfulness. Just a little bit day by day. And the Bible said that that day by day marking of Sodom and Gomorrah on, on Lot vexed his righteous soul. That's why we have to have daily restoration in the spirit. That's why we ought to be trying to pray in the Holy Ghost every day. If possible. Every day we need a dose of the word of God. Every day we need a prayer life. Because it's that that removes that mark. We need a daily restoration in the Holy Ghost. Can I tell you living in this world. Sunday and Wednesday by itself is not enough. To keep from being vexed. We need to give ourselves. To a daily restoration. In the Holy Ghost. That's why you shouldn't be afraid to be standing in your house. And lift your hands and say, God, I'll worship you. Because it's that restoration. It's that restorative act that removes some of that stuff that the world wants to vex your soul with. Amen. I, 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 you can go online and you can watch. You can see what a touchstone. You can see that interaction. And you can tell that sometimes that, that this, all it is, it might be overhearing a conversation from two co-workers talking about what they did over the weekend or what they would like to do. And that leaves just a little bit of a mark. 
And if you could see in the Spirit that when you come back to the house of God, there's these marks all over. And those marks are the vexing. It's why we can be so convinced when we first come to God that we need to be a man of worship. But you give us a little bit of time and the world will mark us to where sometimes we can come to church and not even move a muscle because our soul has been vexed by day-to-day marking. Amen. There is another element to what I'm preaching. Oh God, help me tonight. And that is the issue that we find in the life of King David. David was obviously strategic to the success of Israel. Anyone, oh Lord, I hope you'll listen to this phrase, to this sentence. Anyone who is strategic to the success of the church becomes a target for Satan. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Anyone who is strategic to the success of the church becomes a target for Satan. It makes your sins more impacting if you sin. But it also makes your work for the Lord more critical to the kingdom of God. Can I tell you tonight that Satan wanted to harm Israel so he provoked David. 1 Chronicles 21 and 1. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Satan wanted to come against the people of God, the church, the congregation of Israel. And his way to do that was to try to get David to do something that God told him not to do. The temptation of David was not simply about David. The temptation of David was about stopping the kingdom of God from progressing. Make no mistake about it tonight. The enemy is trying to get sin into your life, but it's not all about you. He wants to damage the kingdom of God through you. Praise God. I know this here is a shouting preaching, but I hope we have some shouting preaching in a little bit. David stands up against the church by provoking the people in the church. If the devil gives you an opportunity to sin, it's not so you can enjoy the pleasure of that sin. It's because he's trying to diminish the power of the church. If he can weaken the people in the church, he can weaken the power of the church. And so his strategy to stop Israel was if I can provoke David, David is strategic for the advance of the kingdom. Can I tell you what he would like? He would like to get every singer and musician to get some kind of sin in your life. Not because he wants you to enjoy sin, but he wants to diminish the anointing that comes out from this platform that reaches the city and reaches the pew and reaches the people watching. He wants to get jealousy and bitterness in the people of God, whatever, at any capacity that you serve. The goal is to diminish Israel. So the Bible said he provoked David. The word provoked there meant to stimulate or to seduce, to entice, to persuade, to incite, to allure, to instigate. Can I tell you that if you have ever felt provoked to sin, you can rest assured 
that it is a strategy of the enemy to stop the kingdom of God from fulfilling its full potential in this day and hour. And if there's ever been a time when the world needs a church at its best, this is the time and this is the hour. So you've got to be aware that if the enemy is trying to provoke you, there is a goal and you need to stop and say, God, help me to have conviction in this hour like never before. So God had specifically, God had specifically commanded David not to number the people of Israel. Don't number, don't take a census and find out how many people are in Israel. Because God knew that regardless of the answer, it was going to have an impact on David's faith. If David got the numbers back and he saw the population was small, He would have an attack against his faith and think there's no way we can do what God's called us to do. We don't have the ability. We're too weak. We're too little. But if the number came back and the population was bigger than he expected, then he would be tempted to rely on his natural ability and not on God. And either extreme, having too little confidence or having too much confidence, either extreme is dangerous when it comes to self-reliance. God, if I, don't think I can't, if I don't think I can do it, then I won't try to do anything. And I'll be paralyzed by my lack of faith. But if I ever get too overconfident and think I can do it, we're big enough, we can do it on our own. We don't need God. We don't need to pray. We can have revival without prayer meeting. We can have revival without a prayer room. We can have revival without living holy. If we ever get to that point, then we're too big. And if we ever get to where we think we can't do it, we're too small. So God said, don't number the people because your faith needs to be in me, not in your numbers. Neither extreme was tenable. And God understood the importance of faith and confidence in him alone. Joab, David's military general, had seen God work and knew that God's help was the most important factor in Israel's success. He watched God guide a stone to a giant's forehead. He watched as a small army had continuously overcome the enemies all around them. Joab knew God doesn't need us to number the people. Here's what he told David. When David said, Joab, go number the people. Here's what he said. First Chronicles 21 and 3. And Joab answered, the Lord make his people a hundred times so many more as they be. Hallelujah. A hundred times. So if I got one soldier... It's like having a hundred. And if I got a hundred, it's like a hundred more than that. For every one, a hundred times so many more. Can I tell you that even if you've got to stand by yourself, it's like a hundred are standing right there with you. Because when God decides to take care of somebody, there's nothing that the world can do to stop it. However many people we got here, you can multiply it by a hundred because that's what we can do if God is on our side. Can I tell you that God is able? God is able. God is able. And Joab said, we don't need to number the people. He said, my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Every one of them. Our servant, why do we have to do? Don't tell me. Don't ask me to do it. 
Don't ask me to do it. God said don't do it. Don't ask me to do it. The Bible said that the Lord, the king's word, verse number 4 of 1 Chronicles 21, Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Wherefore, Joab departed and went through all Israel and came to Jerusalem. David's sin of disobedience brought the judgment of God upon Israel. God brought judgment and forced David to choose between three punishments. David, here's, here's, here's your choice. You can have three years of famine. You can have three months of your enemies destroying Israel. Or you can have three days of pestilence upon the people and the land. Choose, David. Three years of famine, three months of your enemies, or three days of pestilence. And verse number 13, David said unto God, I am in a great strait. Sometimes... You get in a position where there's no good answer. You ever been there? Where no matter what you chose, the outcome didn't look good? David said, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord. For very great are his mercies. But let me not fall into the hand of man. God, you're merciful, but man isn't. God, you're merciful, but my enemies aren't. So God, I'm going to let you make the decision. And in the end, 70,000 men died because of David's sin. God saw the devastation of his punishment and sent an angel to the threshing floor of a man named Ornan, a Jebusite. And the, the, the angel had his sword stretched out over Israel. So God has the sword of judgment over Israel. And then God calls David in verse number 18, 1 Chronicles 21. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. David, you've got to go to where that angel of judgment is. And you build an altar at the threshing floor of Ornan. David, if you want this to end, you're going to have to build an altar to make it end. You're not going to be able to get your harp out and sing it away this time. You can't get your pen out and write enough poems and songs to make it go away. You can't sit down and complain until it changes. David, if you want your situation to change, the only way to change your circumstance is to build an altar. Can I tell you that the only way that we can change anything is to build an altar to the Lord. If you're struggling, build an altar. If you're suffering, build an altar. If you're in pain, build an altar. If you're in difficulty, build an altar. We need to build altars for our children, build altars for our marriages, build altars for our country, build altars for our community, build altars for our church. The primary thing that we need to do is we need to build some fresh altars of prayer to God. God, send your mercy. I wish somebody would build an altar right now and say, God, my family needs your mercy. 
My marriage needs your mercy. My children need your mercy. And so David built an altar. David, to build an altar, David had to get access to the threshing floor. And so David went to Ornan, the Jebusite, and said, I want to buy your threshing floor. I need to build an altar to God and stop this terrible plague. And Ornan said to the king, no, no, no. You're not going to buy the threshing floor. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you so you can stop this. I don't, you don't have to buy it, king. You're the king. And David said in verse 24, And King David said to Ornan, Nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price. For I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna buy it, and I'm not gonna buy it at a discounted price. I'm not gonna ask for revival at a discount. I'm not gonna ask for a bargain basement anointing. I'm not gonna ask for a cheap sacrifice. If I'm gonna build an altar, I'm gonna buy it for the full price. I'm not looking for a discount. I'm not looking for a bargain. I'm not buying revival at dirt cheap. I'm going to buy full price. Can I tell you too many people in the world, too many Christians in America are looking for a cheap revival and a bargain revival, but not this church. God, if it takes an altar, I'll build an altar. If it takes worship, I'll work. I don't want a bargain basement revival. God, send it. We'll pay whatever it costs. very top heavy message. The introduction is much bigger than the sermon. I'm not asking you for a cheap revival. I'm not demanding free mercy. God, whatever it takes for me to see this restoration, then that's what I need. God, whatever the price, that's what I'll pay. Brother Benny, I know you don't want me to talk about you, but I'm going to do it anyway, and I'm going to ask for mercy when it's over. Brother Benny's been working out there for months every day, not just him, but he's the subject of this particular story. I've tried to get him to let me pay him, and he won't let me. Every time... That I try to pay him. He tells me, Brother V, I don't have a lot of money to give, but I can do this work. And he says, That's my reasonable service. And I, Brother Benny, let me give you some money. Let me, no, this is my reasonable service. This is what I can give to the, to the work of God. And, and so I told him, Respectfully, I said, Brother Benny, I told him three weeks ago, it was three weeks ago Monday, I told Brother Benny, I said, Brother Benny, you're stubborn. 
didn't I? Right there, you were sitting right by my table, and I said, Brother Benny, you're stubborn. But the context of that was that his youngest daughter was in the ICU, and the doctors told him, you're going to have to have a meeting with palliative care tomorrow, and you're going to have to make an end-of-life decision on your daughter. You don't know what feeling helpless feels like? It's being a pastor helping a parent plan their child's funeral. So we prayed. And the next morning, he got up and drove to Tupelo to the hospital to meet with palliative care. What the doctors didn't know was Brother Benny had been buying a threshing floor for months. Every nail was a payment for a threshing floor. Every cut board was a payment for a threshing floor. And when the doctor said, you're going to have to make a decision on the unplugger, all of a sudden her liver started working and her kidneys started working. And within a week, she was out of the ICU and into a rehab. Because when you start buying a threshing floor and you're willing to pay a price, God stays the angel's hand. I'm not saying bad stuff won't ever happen. But what I am saying is I'm not asking God to do something at a bargain price. God, I'll give you everything I've got. Whatever it takes to have revival, that's what this church is going to do. We're not going to ask for a cheap revival. We're not going to ask for a discount revival. Whatever it takes for our kids to pray through. Whatever it takes for our marriages to be healed. Whatever it takes for our family to come. That's what we'll pay the price for. Oh, God. The Bible said in verse 27, I didn't give him the verse, but the Bible said the Lord commanded the angel and he put up his sword again into the sheath. Can I tell you, there is a sword of judgment that's over our world and our country and our land. And that sword of judgment is being held out and it is not up to the politicians and it's not up to the media and it's not up to the denominations. It's up to the apostolic church to go before God and be willing to build an altar at the threshing floor until the angel puts his sheath up. Oh God, lift your hands. I'm getting to my sermon here. Thank God. This is the moment when the angel put his sword away. This is the moment that David decided it's time for me to build a house for God. I've built palaces. I've built forts. I've built towers. I've dug wells. I've raised armies. I've fought Philistines. I've done everything, but now it's time for me to build a house for God. And in this moment, when the angel put the sword in the sheath, the Bible said that the focus of David began to shift away from building his kingdom to the house of God. He said he got gold and silver and cedars and iron and nails and brass. 
And David invested himself in building a house for the next generation. Amen. The Bible was clear that David was old and approaching death. But he invested not really for himself, but for the next generation. He said in verse 5 of chapter 22, and David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender. He doesn't have what it takes to do what needs to be done yet. He doesn't have the resources at hand. And the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnificent of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. I'm running out of time. So I got to build. I got to get ready. I'm running out of time. So I got to make sure that the house of God gets taken care of. I'm running out of time. And so now my priorities have shifted. I've seen God's mercy stop the angel from judgment. And I know that I'm approaching the end of my race. And so now David prepared abundantly before his death. But the house of God was not to be ordinary or average in any way. The house of God was never supposed to be mediocre in any capacity. There should be a commitment to excellence at every level of the church. If we are going to work, please listen. If we are going to work, we should do our best. If we're going to sing, teach, preach, clean, mow, anything, everything, we should strive for excellence. The house of God must be exceeding magnifical. David was not just thinking about Solomon and his children and grandchildren in preparing for the house of the Lord. Notice this phrase in the middle of verse number 25. The house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnifical of fame and of glory throughout all countries. David understood this is not just about me and Solomon and my children and grandchildren, but the house of God has to be great enough to exhibit His glory to every country that's around us. There ought to be something so magnificent about the house of God that everyone around us can know that God has glory and that God is great. The way that we build for God, the magnificent nature of His house is a demonstration to the Egyptians and the Syrians and the Philistines and the Jebusites and the Moabites that God's glory is great. And so the way that I serve is the way that I show the countries how great God is. Hallelujah. Woo, Jesus, have mercy. God, help me. So there was something 
prophetic and powerful about David. Lord, let me preach like I'm 10 years younger just for a few minutes. When the apostles, hallelujah. Man, I feel, I know where I'm going, so I already feel where I'm going. When the apostles were in the upper room in Acts chapter number one, and they were praying for God to give them direction and for the power of his glory to come down in that upper room. It was at this point that the apostle Peter stood up with the, rest of the, with the rest of the apostles. And he referenced David and a psalm that David had written a thousand years earlier. And that psalm of David became the foundation for them appointing Matthias to take the office of Judas. And then, after following the thousand-year-old instruction of David, they began their Pentecostal prayer meeting. And they began to seek God in the upper room. And then, as the chapter turned from one to two, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one place. And they were all in one accord. And suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire and it sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. Woo! Hallelujah! Now when this was noised abroad there was such a white hot Holy Ghost anointing that filled that upper room that it began to spread to the whole city and people from all over the world had gathered in Jerusalem and they came to that upper room and Peter began to preach when they said, these men are full of new wine. Peter, standing up with the 11, said, these men are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it's but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, saying, it shall come to pass. In the last days, saith God, that I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Woo, hallelujah. As the first fire of Pentecost burned white hot in the initial moments of the church, while under the anointing of the Holy Ghost, for the very first time, preaching the inaugural sermon of Pentecost, Simon Peter cleared his throat and again reached back 1,000 years to David and referenced him not once but twice in the first sermon of the church because there was something about a man who invested himself into making God's house magnificent that lives beyond his own generation. There's something about someone who has a desire to make the house of God magnificent that though his bones have been in a tomb for a thousand years, his testimony burns like fire in an upper room. 
There's something about a commitment to somebody that says, God, I'm not going to give you average. I'm not going to give you ordinary. I'm not just going to give by. I'm not going to give you a half-hearted praise, a half-hearted prayer, a half-hearted sermon. I'm not going to give you half-hearted devotion. I'm not going to give you half-hearted worship. I'm not going to give you half-hearted effort. But God, everything I do for you must be exceeding magnifical. And when you make that commitment, your life, your life outlives you. Hallelujah. Jesus, have mercy. Oh, God. Hallelujah. I still quote Brother J. Frank Wilson. He's been dead as long as I've been married. And I've been married a long time. But his words still speak. After 28, almost 28 years, it'll be 28 years in February since he died. But after 28 years, his words still speak. When there's been a lot of people died in that same year, that their name has never been uttered outside of their own immediate family. But something about this preacher man from rural Mississippi still gets quoted when I'm on the other side of the world and preach a European conference in Poland back in October. Brother, Brother M.L. Walls is talking about Bishop J. Frank Wilson 28 years after he's been put in the ground because when you make a commitment to a magnificent house for God, there's something about that that just like it brought David a thousand years out of his tomb to be mentioned in an upper room, it does something. May I tell you how we approach serving God in 2023 is going to determine if we fade or if we're remembered. Make it magnificent. I'm coming, I'm coming to a close sometime over the next few days. If you commit yourself to excellence in God's house, your influence will far outlive you. The word magnificent is a fascinating word. It only appears in the Bible one time. Its meaning is very similar to words that sound much like it. It's in the vein of magnificent or to magnify. The word magnificent means great or to grow, to nourish up, to, great, to become great or important, to make powerful. And listen to this phrase, to do Great things. You cannot be magnificent and be inactive. It cannot be magnificent and be dormant. To be magnificent, there must be great things done. We are not called to coast into heaven. Hear this preacher tonight. We are not here to fly under the radar. We are not here to be ordinary or average. The house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceeding magnificent. Not should be, not could be, not ought to be, but it must be. Not just magnificent, but exceeding magnificent. It is not good enough just to show up and have average ordinary church. It is not good enough just to show up and give a half-hearted, tepid, temperate praise. It is not 
good enough just to go in the prayer room and offer a half-hearted phrase or two to God. But the house that must be built for God, it must be exceeding. Man, I'm calling on this church to take everything we do to another level. Everything we do. Everything we do. Don't let another choir practice just be a mundane practice. Don't let another Sunday school lesson be just a mundane Sunday school lesson. Don't let a prayer meeting be a mundane prayer meeting. Everything that we do must be exceeding, magnificent. Anything else is to rob God of what he deserves. The translators who translated the Bible into English for King James in the early 1600s used this word only one time in the entire Bible. It appears that if not for the translator's use of this word this one time, that the word would never be referenced at all, nearly. I have searched for a month. I have searched for four weeks. And I have tried to find it used historically in other forms of literature. And in four weeks of searching, I have found only four non-biblically based references of this word used at all. And it is highly probable that if not for the use of this word in the Bible, it would not be used at all in the English language. There are no instances of it appearing before the publication of the Bible, the King James Bible in 1611. So it is entirely within the realm of probability that this word only exists today because it was used one time in your Bible. It is a word that appears to be reserved only to describe how majestic God's house is to be. Ball games and athletes are not magnificent. Arenas and stadiums are not magnificent. Houses of government are not magnificent. Palaces and mansions are not magnificent. Works of art are not magnificent. Artists and actors and singers and celebrities are not magnificent. Presidents and senators and congressmen and kings are not magnificent. Lakes and rivers and beaches and mountains and oceans, while beautiful, are not magnificent. The Bible uses many words of adoration and worship and reverence. The Bible uses the words beauty and beautiful to describe various things. It says that things are good or goodly. It claims that several things are pleasant or glorious or have glory. The scriptures ascribe the words honor and honorable and mighty and majestic to assorted subjects. Terms like great, well-favored, comely, fair, or magnified are applied to miscellaneous people and items throughout the scripture. Literally thousands of times the Bible uses the aforementioned terminology to describe compliments to all kinds of worthy people, places, things, or actions. However, there is only one thing in the entire world that deserves to be called magnificent, and that is a house of worship where the glory and the presence of God visits and moves and touches people. Palaces are majestic, but only the house of God is magnificent. Rivers and mountains are beautiful, but only the house of God 
is magnificent. Rivers. David said the house we build for the Lord must be magnificent. David ends this chapter by admonishing all the princes of Israel. In the last verse, he said, 1 Chronicles 22 and 19, the last verse of chapter 22. Now, set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Arise, therefore, and build ye the sanctuary of the Lord God to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God into the house that is to be built to the name of the Lord. And he put a period, the writer put a period, the chapter's over, and the very next verse, chapter 1 of verse 23, tells us, now David was old and full of days, so he made Solomon the king. It appears that the last concern of David's reign before his transition was about making the house of God magnificent. One last point before I close. Brother Ethan, if you'll come up. Let us look again at the central part of our main text. 1 Chronicles 22 and 5. The house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnificent of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I reiterate a phrase I said earlier, that David understood that it was not just about him and his, but the house of God had to be great enough to show God's glory throughout all countries. The house of God should be magnificent, not so those of us who know his grace and glory will stay, but because we understand that the world deserves to see a church full of the glory of God. This generation, North Mississippi, 2023, everyone who watches a service, sees an online post, listens via podcast or YouTube or SoundCloud or Facebook Live, anyone who experiences in person or remotely anything of Bethlehem Church deserves to see a magnificent church, a holiness church, not a weak, watered-down version of modern Christianity that pervades our culture like a virus. This world needs a church that's on fire with magnificent prayer. And so I'm calling on the church to make it magnificent. This world needs to see a church that offers our Savior passionate, heartfelt, on fire, magnificent praise and worship. So let's make it magnificent. Our children deserve to have Sunday school teachers who go beyond the mundane of just putting a little something together but that translate the burden and the heart and the passion of God's word. Let's make it magnificent. This world deserves to see a choir and a music team that's anointed of the Holy Ghost and excited about being used of God. Let's make it magnificent. They deserve to join in online 
and see a church full of people who love God enough to raise their hands with passion. I'm calling on us to make it magnificent. There's a call. There's a clarion call from the balcony of heaven coming from the lips of a Savior that bled and died for this church. There's a call on our youth group. Make your life, your service, make it magnificent. There's a call on grandparents who may have felt like your time of service was over and you gave your time and you did what you could do. But there is a resounding call from heaven calling all generations of the church to make it magnificent. There's a call in our little boys and our little girls that when you come to church, do more than color and play with toys. But when you feel the anointing of God, you lift your hands to God and let's make it magnificent. If you stand behind the pulpit, behind the keyboard, on a set of drums, or touch a guitar, make it magnificent. If you stand by the door and shake hands for guests, make it magnificent. If you touch a soundboard, a camera, a computer, make it magnificent. If you teach and be free, if you deliver food to somebody, if you cook for a funeral or for a sick person, make it magnificent. For the house, is to be built for the Lord must be exceeding magnificent. So the fame and glory will reach to all countries. Make it magnificent. Make it magnificent. A word that only can be used. For the glory of God. Oh God, lift your hands all over this place. I'm preaching a mindset of how we approach our service this year. I'm preaching a mentality. Brother Daniel, when you go to the nursing home, I hope to God that some people will volunteer to go with you to help sing, to preach, to teach. But when you go, even if you go by yourself and you've done it week after week and you're tempted to think there's no use, when you step into that room full of those elderly people and you open your Bible and begin to talk to them, make it magnificent. Guys, when you go to the jail and you preach to those men once a month for the rally and you go on Fridays and teach, people that the rest of the world has by and large forgotten of, when you stand in front of them, don't pass it off, but make it magnificent. Sunday school teachers, 
you're trying to wipe a kid's runny nose and teach a lesson at the same time. It's all you can do to maintain order. Make it magnificent For the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceeding magnificent to grab somebody's hand and raise it up high. On this last service of 2022, as we step into a brand new year, can we pray and make this our commitment, God? I'm going to make it magnificent. I'm not going to give to you what I give to a sports team. I'm going to make it magnificent. I'm not even going to give to a hobby or pastime the same thing that I give to you because my calling is to make it magnificent. I'm not going to be more invested in my career than I am in my kingdom of God. I'm going to make it magnificent. What I do for the Lord, I'm going to do with all my heart. Can we make that commitment to excellence? Can, I, can we make a commitment to going to another level? I'm going to take my prayer to a magnificent level. I'm going to take my worship to a magnificent level. I'm going to take my involvement. I'm going to make it magnificent because the house that we're building for God must be exceeding magnificent so that all the countries can see his glory. Come on, I feel it right now. You feel that call, don't you? You feel that call of the Spirit, don't you? You feel that pulling of the Holy Ghost on us. Some of us need to take our level of holiness living to a higher level and make it magnificent. Pray one with another. There's a call. We ought to feel it's a compliment from God that He thinks we got more in us. We ought to take it as a compliment from Jesus Christ that He thinks that there's still another level for us, that there's still another, another place for us to go to. Come on, let's make it magnificent. Can we give a magnificent prayer to God right now? Or a magnificent praise? right come on lift your voice lift your voice lift your voice to heaven let your voice be heard God I'm going to make it a magnificent year for Bethlehem Church for our community come on lift your voice let's take it to another level right now right now. Let's seek Him greater right now. We want to see great things, God. We want to build Your kingdom. We want to build Your kingdom. We want to make it magnificent, God. 
excellent, amazing, mighty God. We yield to the call right now, Jesus. We yield to the call right now. Lift your hands and surrender to Him. Lift your hands and surrender to Him. God's speaking to you some things right now, some commitments you need to make for this new year. God's speaking to you. Listen to Him. Open your ears and, and submit unto His will right now. In the name of Jesus, God, we say yes to your plan. We say yes to your will. God, we want to do it with excellence. Whatsoever our hand findeth to do, God, help us to do it with all of our might. Let it be magnificent, O oh God. God, we agree to your word. We agree to your will. We agree to your plan for us. We don't want to halfway do it. We don't want to partially do it. We don't want to give just 95% or even 99%. But God, we're going to give it 100%. We want it to be magnificent before your presence, God. We agree to your will. We agree to your plan, Jesus.
this year be sure to do that if you want your tithes and offerings recorded for 2022 let's lift our hands and pray over this the end of this year father we thank you for the word of god that was spoken we thank you god for challenging us and speaking to us and telling us we must do everything we do with excellence we must build your house a magnificent house it must be it must be magnificent and Father, I pray you put that seed of the word in us that it will not only be in our hearts for tonight, but it will continue on through the end of this year into next year. God, let next year be greater than it's ever been. God, we pray that revival will spark out of this service, God. For we're not going to pay half price. We're, we're willing to.
rain. Full price, God, for your will to be done, for revival to come. God, we're believing for revival. We're believing for harvest. We're believing for double, for triple, for multiplication this year, God. Do it in the name of Jesus. We pray it in the name of Jesus, oh God. And help us to prepare, even as David prepared for the building of the house. Help us, oh God, to prepare ourselves for your work, for the kingdom of God to be expanded for revival and harvest. In Jesus' name, shout amen. 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 You can be dismissed tonight in Jesus' name.